Welcome to the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion. We're so glad you have joined us for this audio sermon. You can find a full archive of sermons on our website, holycommunion.net. This sermon was preached by me, the Reverend Mike Angel, Rector of Holy Communion, on Sunday, August 2nd, 2020, the ninth Sunday after Pentecost. The title is Wrestling with God. In the name of the one living and true God, the God of fierce whimsy. Amen. Here's a thesis. The Bible's endurance comes at least in part from its mystery. The Bible's endurance comes at least in part from its mystery. These Genesis stories were told hundreds of years before ever being written down. And the stories are probably close to 3,000 years old. They were campfire tales, told and refined by generations of storytellers long before the scribes got hold of them. Genesis is a book of primordial stories. Genesis tells us where God's people came from. And part of the endurance of these stories is that they're often not easy. They don't resolve themselves simply. What about life with God is simple. And Jacob's story is one of the most complex in Genesis. And this morning we find him on the riverbank. He's been up all night. He's limping. He has been wrestling. The question is, with whom? That's part of the mystery. The scripture simply tells us he encountered a stranger Centuries later, the prophet Hosea would tell us that it was an angel. In the moment, Jacob believes he has wrestled God. And context is everything in the Bible. So we have to know this isn't the first time Jacob has wrestled. In fact, we hear that he and his twin brother Esau tussled in Rebekah's womb. The twins were born Esau first, but Jacob didn't let go of his twin brother's heel, even in birth. And Jacob is the trickster. His name can be translated just that way, trickster. He tricks Esau into giving him his birthright for some food. And then with his mother's help, he seals the deal. In the famous story, old Isaac has gone blind. Worried for his future, he wants to bless his firstborn son Esau to continue the promised family line. But while Esau is off hunting, Jacob puts on goatskins. He appears like his hairier brother to his father's touch. Isaac blesses Jacob instead of Esau. And through cunning, Jacob becomes the inheritor of God's promise. Now, The trickster also gets his comeuppance in the story. Last week, we heard the story of Jacob's marriages, plural. Out of fear of his bigger sibling, his stronger older brother, Jacob flees and ends up in the household of Laban. Your assistant rector, the Reverend Lori Anzalotti, was complaining about this text last week. In the story, Laban's daughters are introduced only based on their looks. 
Lori is right to be frustrated. This is not one of the Bible's better moments on gender. Laban treats the young women as commodities to be traded. But in a way, this story is also refreshing, surprising, because of what the story does not say. Leah is not ugly. Leah is not repugnant. The story is more interesting because it's not the usual story of the one beautiful daughter and the one unattractive daughter. It's not what we'd expect. In the marriage, Laban manages to trick the trickster. You see, whether for her beauty or for some other wonderful intellect or spirit that the Bible fails to mention, Jacob falls in love with Rachel, the younger daughter. And Jacob asks for her hand. Laban demands that he work for seven years to earn his bride. And on the wedding night, Laban instead puts his older daughter Leah in the bridal veil. Now, why Jacob fails to recognize the woman he loves until after the deed is done is left to mystery. But the trickster has been tricked. And in a reversal of Jacob's earlier trickery over Esau, Laban substitutes the older child for the younger. Now, marriage, as we know, is not a static institution. 3,000 years ago, marrying Leah did not prevent Jacob from also marrying Rachel. But Laban made him work an additional seven years for the privilege. There's even more to this story, more trickery, but it's hard to describe because it's all about livestock transfers and inheritance, and I've been going on long enough. But know that trickery is at the heart of Jacob's story. It's the unifying theme. And in the end, Jacob has to flee his father-in-law's place as well. He has to leave Laban's land and head back home to Canaan. And it's on this journey, on the journey home, that we find Jacob. On the night before he has to encounter his brother Esau, he's scared. He should be. Jacob's messengers have told him that Esau is coming with about 400 men. The trickster will have to face up to the brother whose blessing, whose birthright he stole. And I wonder if this night isn't full of all sorts of doubts and angst for Jacob. He revisits all the tricks, all the deceit, all the ways he has connived to reach this riverbank. And it is here, in this pregnant night, that the mysteries reach their peak. I suspect if the story gave us an easy resolution, it wouldn't have endured. Easy stories are easily forgotten. The story of Jacob is full of questions. Did God destine the brothers to fight? They were wrestling in the womb. Why did Isaac and Rebekah encourage their rivalry with paternal favoritism? Did God really need Jacob to use trickery? Or did God prosper Jacob despite his tricks? You can wrestle these questions and the solutions will elude you. I think the story works because it invites us to enter into the questions and it doesn't give easy answers. Life with God isn't simple. It's not always cut and dry. 
You can't just give your life to Jesus and expect it to be all smooth sailing. I wish it were so. Meaning doesn't always come easily. Often questions of discernment, questions around big decisions, they don't resolve easily. But this morning, let me offer one set of questions I've been leaning into lately around Jacob. See, for me, it helps to remember that the people who will take his new name, the people Israel, were from the moment Jacob fled from his brother, a minority community. Interpreters of Jacob's story haven't always had as much struggle as I'm having this morning. In the first and second centuries, the rabbis always interpreted Esau and his people Edom as a stand-in for Rome, the might of the empire in the strength of the older brother. In the earlier centuries, Esau was probably seen as an analog of Persia or Babylon or whoever the great power was in the region. This was read as a story of God using Jacob's cunning to overcome oppressors. Jacob is a trickster, and whether any given trick was just or right, it's a hard question to ask. But could trickery be a blessing? Could a willingness to bend the rules save lives? Could God use even a politician like Jacob? Could this instance in scripture be a witness of what the late scholar Katie Cannon called God's fierce whimsy? Uh, Approaching the answer might be easier a few generations on down the line. In a few weeks, we will read the story of two of Jacob's descendants, Shipra and Puah. These women trick Pharaoh. The Egyptian king tells them to kill the Hebrew boys. Instead, they lie and tell Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like your women. They are vigorous. Were Shipra and Puah wrong to deceive Pharaoh? I'd say not. As Augustine wrote and Dr. King quoted, Lex in justa non est lex. An unjust law is no law at all. Could God favor the tricksters, the ones who push the status quo away from injustice and inequity? Faced with oppressive or incompetent rulers, God's people do what they can to save lives. Is there a sense of humor in these texts? Can God be a bit of a trickster? when it comes to working for those whose lives are not valued by their neighbors. In the days ahead, many of us are facing difficult decisions. And some of us are setting policies for classrooms, for workplaces, for our household, about how to stay safe in the midst of a pandemic. Others of us are interpreting those policies, trying to figure out how to work with a system we are handed to keep our coworkers, our students, even our parents safe. Might the Bible give us a bit of a license to bend the rules for the sake of preserving life? Those who look to the Bible as a set of divine answers, as a set of static responses, are having a hard time right now. The word coronavirus doesn't appear in either the Greek or the Hebrew. 
And maybe you've heard it's better to think of the Bible as a book of direction, singular, rather than a book of directions, plural. I might say the Bible is better at giving us questions than answers. If that's right, then the mystery of this story might just speak to the mystery of our days. Might there be an invitation to keep going, to keep struggling, to keep at it until we can wrestle a blessing out of this nightmare? These days, it is tempting to throw up your hands and say, there is no way to know the right thing to do. It could be easy to give in to anxiety. But could we dare to believe, like Jacob, that God meets us at the riverside and invites us to stay in the struggle? Amen.